Good morning, my name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Trailhead. Thanks for joining us this morning. We're going to be going over to Romans chapter 7, continuing our study there in Romans 7. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and let's flip open to Romans 7. If you have an app, go ahead and open that up. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 944 for Romans 7. Now this week, we are coming to the end of our study in Romans 7. Um, Romans 7 is this incredible threshold between Romans 6 and Romans 8, which makes sense, right? You're like, dude, it's 7. Yeah, I know. Uh, it is a unique chapter, uh, really, in all of Scripture. I mean, I don't know if there's any other chapter in the entire Bible like this chapter where Paul opens up his heart and reveals to us his personal spiritual struggle to live out the truths that he teaches. All right? He is sharing his story so that we can see our story in his. He is sharing his experience so that it contextualizes our experience, right? Because here's the thing, if, if the Apostle Paul who wrote these incredible letters, who had these incredible things revealed to him, who, who, who was profoundly intelligent and theologically insightful, struggled like this as part of his normal Christian experience. It invites us to stop pretending and performing. It invites us to, um, to get off the treadmill and to recognize that not only is it okay but it's normal that we're going to struggle, right? And, and in fact, we have to struggle. That is essential. The pretending and performing actually undercuts the work of the Spirit in our lives. We, we have to struggle because it's in the struggle between Romans 6 and 8 that we grow from our position in Christ into our experience of Christ, right? Romans 6 is this incredible chapter that is all about our position in Christ, that when we believe in Jesus, we're no longer in Adam, the one who rebelled against God. We're now in the last Adam, the one who obeyed God. And didn't just obey God, but then um, fulfilled the works of the law and earned its blessing and then died under the law's curse and died under guilt, uh, sin's guilt as our substitute, as our Savior. Not because he's a sinner, but because we were. And, and he took our place in that judgment, paying the price we couldn't pay so that we could receive a blessing we could never earn. Right? That's Romans 6. And when you believe in Jesus, man, you're covered in Christ. You are, you are standing in the resurrection. You are standing um, in the very active obedience of Jesus, right? But there's a huge gap between Romans 6, our position in Christ, and Romans 8, which is this incredibly powerful description of our experience in Christ, of freedom, of joy, of, of, of transformation, right? In order for us to move from Romans 6 to Romans 8, we have to grow. We don't just have to learn some things. It's not about getting some new truths into your head. It's not about getting some new habits into your life. It is not about um, fixing things or changing things. We have to be changed. We not only need to be covered in Christ, we need to become like Christ. And the real question is, how do we make that change? How do we go from being covered in Christ to becoming like Christ, right? How, and here's the, the real heart of the, the challenge. How can a heart that is corrupt, corrupted by selfishness, a heart that craves sin, how can a heart like that lead me to freedom from sin? How, how can a heart dedicated to independence from God lead me into humble dependence on God and rest in God? It can't. It can't. That, that's why 
um, the law is useless. The law can tell us where we fall short, tell us what we should do, condemn us for falling, for not doing it, right? The law demands obedience, but it demands it from a heart that's unable to give it. It shows sin. It's really good at that. It condemns sin. It even increases sin, but it can't fix sin. It can't change sin. So, you know, this is where Paul's pushing, man. We can't, we're not just talking about rearranging the furniture of our hearts. We're talking about a complete renovation of our hearts. We don't need restoration. We need resurrection. We don't just need help. We, we need a complete rescue. And that's why at the end of the day, it's not law we need. It's grace. Because grace is the only thing that can do for us what we need done. So let's take a look at Romans 7, verses 21 through 25 together as we look at the, this, this, this ending of this really conflicted, painful, beautiful chapter, right? Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21 through verse 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Paul is summarizing. The, the conflict we've been looking at for the last several weeks as we have explored Romans chapter 7, right? He's summarizing this conflict that, that he's been opening up through this whole chapter, right? In verse 21, we find this summary. So I find it to be a law. So in my personal experience, that's what Paul's saying. In my personal experience, in my Christian life, in my wrestling with these great truths, I find that there is a law. And when he says law here, he doesn't mean the Mosaic law. Right, that we've been talking a lot about the Mosaic Law. He's not saying that. He's talking about a universal law, a universal spiritual principle that's at work in all of humanity. Because not all of humanity was under the Mosaic Law. Right, you had to be born a Jew under the Mosaic Covenant to be under the Law, uh, or become a proselyte to it. Not everybody in the world was under the Law, but but the Law was given by God to be a microcosm of a macro experience. Right, a small little sliver of what is all of human experience. And so what he's saying is that there's a universal spiritual principle that is revealed here, uh, both for the Jews that are under the law, but also the Gentiles who, who aren't, but are in the same human condition. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He's saying, since I have become a follower of Christ, I have this battle within myself that I am powerless to control, that I'm powerless to win. There is a a law at work here, a universal spiritual principle. I have a desire to do right, a desire to have ordered desires instead of disordered ones, right? As believers in Christ, we have a desire for the fullness and flourishing of life. We have a desire to experience everything that's been promised to us in Christ, don't we? 
We have a desire for integrity. We have a desire to be clothed in glory, the glory of Christ, not my own, to to be at rest and not always plagued by insecurity or fear or greed. I, I, I yearn to have the fullness of everything that's been promised to me so that I can go through life unafraid, knowing that God's got me and got the world, that he's telling his story, right, through human history. He, he is ultimately weaving my story into his story. I, I want that. I want to have integrity that runs from my head to my heart to my behavior, right? So there's no conflict within me. I crave the fullness and the flourishing of life. I have a desire to do right, a desire to have ordered desires that actually lead to the fullness of life that they promise. But evil lies close at hand. I have two competing sources of desire within me. All right, verses 22 and 23. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul says, I delight in the law of God. In one way, Paul has always delighted in the law of God, right? Um, Paul was a a Jewish man. So he was born in a Jewish culture from, from his youth. He had been taught about the, the importance of the Mosaic law. He had been taught about, about its value. He had been taught about um, every aspect of it, right? He had been taught that... that and then, then when he came of age and he came under the law, went through his bar mitzvah and came under the law, it then became his what marked him apart, right? For a Jewish man especially, there, there was this sense that this was, this was his pride. This was his ethnic heritage, This is what set the Jewish people apart from all the other nations, all the other ethnicities of the world. It was a mark of his tribe, right? This is what set them apart. This is what made them unique. This is what made them special. This is what made them God's unique people. So in a sense, he always delighted in the law of God. What's changed is how he delights, right? Because there was a delight in the way it set him apart and marked him as superior. There was a delight in the way that it made him feel unique and powerful and special and somehow above others. It was the delight of pride. It was the delight of tribal identity. These are my people, and this is what we do, and why we're better than you. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Notice he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He's not talking about delighting in the law as a marker of his pride. He's talking about his delight in the law as a response to God's love. In Christ, Paul now knows the love of the God who gave the law. Now he doesn't just take pride in the law as a Jewish man. In fact, his pride is humbled. And instead, he delights in the law as a follower of God who not only commands him, but loves him. 
All right, he says, I delight in the law of God because I delight in the God of love who created the law. So he delights in the expression of God's goodwill, in the expression of his his perfection, even if that expression of his goodwill is so far from his own personal experience. He delights in the law of God because he delights in the God who created the law. But he says there's another law at work in his members, his body, his flesh, in, 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 in this power, in, in what he calls his sinful passions, what, we, what we're describing as disordered desires. Desires for good things that are pointed at wrong things, right? Trying to find the fullness of life in ways that can't give it. And here's the thing, he has these sinful passions, he has these disordered desires, and he just can't turn them off. He can't. He can't, by the force of his will, subdue them or change them or silence them. He cannot control them. No matter how hard he tries, no matter how many times he doubles down, no matter how many times he, he recommits his life to Christ, to bring it into modern language. He just can't seem to fix what's wrong. Do you know this conflict? The desire to do good while evil is close at hand. Every follower of Christ does. Have you ever wrestled with the desire to bless others while simultaneously wanting them hurt? You ever actually been in the process of praying that God would give you the ability to forgive somebody? while you were simultaneously fantasizing about how you could hurt them? How you could just come up with the perfect zinger at the perfect time to lodge a dart of poison in their heart? How you could expose their shame? How you could make everybody in the world see who they really are and they would have to stand there exposed? Everyone seeing them as you do. Lord, help me forgive them. I desire to do good, but evil is close at hand. Have you ever desired to be thoroughly and bravely honest? Have you ever desired to be a person of genuine integrity? I love that word, true from, from the heart to the mind to the behavior. You know what I'm saying? Like no matter how you cut it, it's just real. Have you ever desired to be a person that real, a person of absolute integrity, And then you lied without thinking about it when you felt like you were going to be exposed about something embarrassing. Hey man, you got that project done? Yeah, 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 it's in transit. In my head. Shake the trash out this morning? Oh yeah, got it, got it done. It'll be done before you look. Man, we can just so quickly lie. We don't even think of it as a lie because we would never expose it that way. What we think is it's just a future promise. I'm just speaking a future reality now. It's not really a lie. I'm not really deceiving you because you'll never know any better, right? And really what's going on there is is we don't want something about us exposed, something that would give us shame, something that would make us feel weak, something that would, you know, and so what do we do? We cover it up with the fig leaves of lies, right? But I want to be a person of integrity, Have you ever wanted to be 
We'll use an old word here, chaste. But you just can't seem to get away from the restless cravings. The yearning for comfort or escape that comes from forbidden pleasures. What is so beautiful about Romans chapter 7 is that Paul comes to us in that place of shame, in that place of weakness, in that place of, 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 and we don't even want to, we don't even want to admit that exists, you know, like we just, and he's like, look, man, I see you. It's okay. I'm there too. This is in fact the normal Christian life. You have two competing desires within you. And it's going to be a struggle and you're going to fail. And you can't fix it. You can't fix it. You can't just double down. You can't get so tired of yourself that you're like, okay, that's the last time. You you can't do it. If you're a believer in Christ and, and you're like, yeah, that's just not my struggle anymore. Um, honestly, there's only two, really, there's only one way. <laughs> there's only one way to get out of that struggle, and that's to shut down the voice of the Spirit in your life. You know why? Because you cannot shut down the desires of the flesh. You can't make them go away. You can't silence them, but you can grieve the Spirit through your moral performance or through your <clears throat> rejection of God's moral code, right? There's two ways we, we typically do this. We try to steal what God only gives by grace or we try, uh, uh, or, or we try to earn uh, what God only gives as a gift, right? So, so we're either trying to earn it through our moralism or steal it through our self-indulgent, right? It's like two ways to get out of the struggle is, is to one, pretend like it doesn't exist, shut down the spirit of God that's enlightening you to the struggle. And so you're trapped in your pride and trapped in your pretending and performing. Or you give yourself over to your sinful desires. Because you're like, well, I gotta be true to myself. That's really the solution here. Right? I got this internal conflict, and if I just stop wrestling, then I can actually find integrity. Then I can actually be, I want to be a person of integrity, so I'll just give myself over to the disordered desires. The problem is the disordered desires never fulfill their promises, they never take you where you think they're going to go. And so you end up deceiving yourself over and over and over and over again. You either give yourself over to your moralism and start singing the praises uh, of, of, of your own goodness. In fact, the chorus becomes so loud in your mind that every time you look at your resume, you're impressed with yourself so loudly you can't hear the whispers of the Spirit as He is calling you to grow out of your slavery. Or you start singing the praises of the very force that is enslaving you. The sins that are tempting you and and seeking to lure you away. Paul says this is a universal principle. You will struggle. The solution is not to get out of the struggle, y'all. Because you're not going to. Maturity in Christ isn't struggling less. You understand that, right? We have this image of maturity in Christ that somehow when I'm mature in Christ, I just won't struggle with these things anymore, right? Because, because I'll have outgrown the struggle. What? Do you, do you know who wrote the book of Romans? 
Yeah, you think you're going to excel Paul the Apostle in spiritual maturity? Come on now. I find then this universal spiritual principle to be true. Paul says it's universal. You are in a spiritual battle. Not with forces out there, but with your sin in here. Just little little parentheses. Beware of people who try to recruit you into a spiritual battle against forces out there. Cultural, political, those are the bad guys, we have to defeat them. Those are the bad guys, they're going to destroy grace. Those are the bad guys. That's a distraction from the genuine spiritual battle. The genuine spiritual battle isn't out there. It is in here. It is the disordered desires of my heart seeking to enslave me. Not other people's behaviors or political opinions. <laughs> We're not in a battle for politics. We're not in a battle even for our culture or society. We are in a battle for our hearts. And here's the beautiful thing. God transforms culture, not through our battle for culture, but through people who are being transformed from the inside out by the love of God. Paul says this is a universal principle. You will be in a spiritual battle for the rest of your spiritual life. It's a little bit like if you were to genetically fuse a spider and a butterfly. You're like, thanks, Steve. I now have something new in my imagination that will haunt my dreams. Yeah, if you take like a tarantula and mix it with a monarch butterfly, you're like, dude, tarantulas are kind of cute, like gerbils. Okay, think of something small and spindly and nasty. Right? Think about, think about what it would be like to be a creature like that, right? The spider wants to build a web in the dark and feed off death. The butterfly wants to fly free in the light and the air. It wants to feast on good nectar and sunlight. Now imagine the internal conflict of such a creature. The yearning to fly, but the craving for the dark. Wanting nectar, but feasting on death. This thing better have a really good therapist. Right? That's a pretty good image of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And some of you are like, dude, I am here just peeking over the fence into Christianity. You're not selling this thing. Well, welcome. This is the reality. Here's the thing. It is better to have a spiritual battle that leads me to freedom than be enslaved to my disordered desires that always leave me disappointed and empty. This is way better. Because I am being taken by God to something incredibly beautiful. So, yeah, it's a struggle. I'm not inviting you to something that, you know, you're not going to move immediately into the kingdom of God with all of its freedom. You're going to be covered in the freedom of God, but you're going to have to grow into the experience of that freedom, and that's a battle. So you know this struggle, right? You know this struggle? Paul does, right? Verse 24, take a look. Wretched man that I am. 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. Paul, the the incredible theologian. Paul, the one who was highly educated in the philosophy of his day. Paul, who had an intellect that was phenomenal. When confronted with this problem, doesn't give us a, a theology, doesn't give us a philosophy, doesn't return to his intellect. He cries out with his heart, wretched man that I am. This is the cry of his heart. Now we need to understand that this is not a cry of self-loathing. This is not a cry of self-hatred. This is not a cry of self-abuse. There is in our sinful hearts sometimes an impulse to punish ourselves with the vain hope that somehow that's going to make us worthy of love. Sometimes we think that that when I do something wrong, the impulse is I need to punish myself. I need to hurt myself. I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. I can't believe I did that. I'm such a lousy, I don't even know if I am a Christian. I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like we, 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 we just abuse ourselves. I want you to see that that, in fact, is the impulse of pride inverted. What we're saying is, I didn't live up to my own expectations. I disappointed my expectations. I'm going to beat myself up until I get back around to living back up to my expectations. And it never will. All you're doing is beating yourself up until you think you've paid a price enough that you can pretend again that you are what you're not. See, the beauty of Romans chapter 7 is it gets us out of that. When Paul says, wretched man that I am, he's not saying I loathe myself, I hate myself, I abuse myself. The word wretched literally means miserable, suffering. He's not abusing himself, he's expressing himself. He's saying, I am miserable in the struggle. I'm in pain. This isn't just an intellectual battle. I crave to do good, but evil is near at hand. I want to be free. But my desires keep leading me back to the prison of slavery to my disordered desires, wretched, miserable, suffering man that I am. He's not hating himself. He's sharing his misery. He's not beating himself up to become worthy of love. He's crying out for love. Who will deliver me? Because I am helpless. I'm not just weak. I'm helpless. I don't just need help. I need rescue. I can't fix this. I can't do enough. I can't work enough. I can't know enough. I can't have enough willpower. I can't fix this. And the more I try, the more I sin. Who will save me from this body of death? I read years ago about a particularly heinous form of Roman execution. 
In fact, I remember exactly where I was. I remember it was Ed Wiest. Wiest uh, is a commentator, and, and I love his expanded translation of Scripture. But Wiest talks about a specific punishment that Paul may have been referring to where they take a murderer, somebody who is guilty of murder, not just manslaughter, not accidental, but somebody who is a murderer, and they tie them to their corpse. Hand to hand, foot to foot, face to face. And then they leave them out in the Middle Eastern sun. So the death they caused will become their death. So that their action of killing will consume them and kill them. Yeah, the Romans were really good at coming up with bad stuff. It is a picture of being absolutely helpless, miserable, suffering, and not innocent. It is my very actions that increase my pain. It's my own sin that increases my suffering. It is my best efforts to do good that compound my evil. Who will free me from this body of death? His response is interesting to me, right? Paul doesn't like just switch into teaching mode or theology mode or philosophy mode. He doesn't give an extended answer to this profoundly personal cry, right? The moment is too explosively personal. So his first impulse isn't to teach us. His first impulse is simply to explode with the gratitude of someone who knows the answer. All right, take a look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Seems like an odd place for such an explosive expression of gratitude. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hear this in the right voice, right? Because when Paul says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want you to hear this uh, like the voice of, of, of somebody, you know, praying, giving thanks in public for a meal at a restaurant. You know, like, like thank you, Lord, for the bounty before us and for your provision, right? No. This is the exclamation of a parent who lost their kid at a park and spent 30 minutes searching for their child, reimagining every car that came and went out of that parking lot, thinking about every person who'd been walking around only after 30 minutes to see them on a faraway playground swinging on a swing. And you say, thank God. And you're like, Steve, that was oddly specific. Yes, it was. Maybe that wasn't your moment. That was one of mine. Thank God. It is the emotional, explosive expression of one whose most dreaded reality didn't come true. It is the explosive gratitude of one who received 
when he thought he had lost everything. When he had no right to expect love, he was given grace. Thank God. How am I going to be delivered from the body of this death? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul explodes with gratitude. I can't, but Lord, you can. I'm helpless, but you're not. I can't fix this. But you can and you will. I am not rejected because of my weakness. I am not rejected because of my helplessness. I am not rejected because of my failure and continual failure over and over and over again. I am not rejected. I am not despised. I am not diminished. I am not belittled. I am not a disappointment. I am loved. Through my Lord Jesus Christ, I am loved exactly as I am. And it is that love that will deliver me. It is that love that will change me. It is that love that will transform me. Thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul ends the chapter with a summation of the conflict he's been describing right at the very end of verse 25. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I continue to have conflict, y'all. I continue to struggle. I continue to want to do good, and yet I do evil. This is a universal spiritual principle in this life that will not be fixed until I get my new resurrected body. When the flesh, once and for all, is removed from my experience, the disordered desires are gone. Now, Romans 7, thankfully, flows right into Romans 8, right? He doesn't leave us sitting in Romans 7 too long. He just takes us right into Romans 8, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, it is tattooed on my soul. Like, not even kidding. I have said that verse to myself one million times or more. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but there is none. But you don't, there is none. There is no better way to silence the inner critic than to remove his voice. There's no better way to, 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 to disarm the prosecuting attorney that is continually accusing you and attacking you than to give him the final verdict. There is therefore now no condemnation. Romans 7 flows right into Romans 8. Paul doesn't leave us hanging. But I'm going to leave you hanging for a little while. Because we're not going to go straight into Romans chapter 8. Okay? I Believe me, I want to. I absolutely want to. But we're at a unique season in the life of our church where I believe we need to take a little break from Romans and focus on um, what's happening and what's going to be happening. Um, 
And so we're going to take a little season. We're going to talk about what it means to be a church planting church. We're coming up on some pretty momentum, momentous things in the life of our church. We are a church plant from a church planting church, right? When I planted Trailhead, when I started Trailhead, I, I came out of the journey, which they, out of their generosity, out of their investment, this was born. We have sent out two previous church planters, and we're getting ready to send out our third. And, and Brian, our worship leader, uh, is moving to Arizona at the end of this year. His house is already getting ready to be on the market. Um, things are going to get quick chaotic fast. And he's not just going by himself. He is taking a whole team of people with him to Arizona. We are sending out not just a couple. We are sending out a team. And that's going to be costly. It's going to cost us leaders. It's going to ta- cost us faithful servants. It's going to cost us a lot of money. And that's why we call it giving, you know, being a, a, a daughter churches, right? It, it, it's not directly parallel, but it's costly. Giving birth to a church costs a lot. It's worth it. And we're doing it to bless people we've never met. We're doing it so that people we've never seen can be enriched by the gospel. But I absolutely believe that we are enriched by the generosity in ways we could never be enriched by keeping our resources. And so we're going to be moving into a sermon series looking at, because we haven't spent a lot of time talking lately about what it means to be a church planting church and how that is part of the DNA of who we are as Trailhead Church. And so we're going to take a little bit of a season. We're going to be talking about generosity is absolutely intrinsic to the mission of the church. But here's the thing. So starting next week, we're going to be starting that. But, but I want to put a little bit of a a little bit of a, a, a bow on this thing. I don't want to leave you. Because some of you are like, man, I'm with you, man. I've been with you all through Romans 7. And I'm right there. Like, like, thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But what does that even mean? How do I get there? Right? Like you've, you've <laughs> I had a friend one time use a metaphor. He's like, the church sometimes helps me unpack my stuff. It's like I open up my garage door and I pull it all out into the driveway. But they don't help me to do anything with it. It's all just out there now. I see it, but I don't know what to do. So, so I'm going to help you a little bit, right? I, I, so to, to, before we close this sermon, I want to give you a little glimpse of one of the central themes of Romans 8 that is both a comfort to your pain and an invitation to your courage, okay? Uh, in Romans chapter 7, the pronoun I the pronoun I in Romans chapter 7 is used 31 times. Paul talks about himself a lot. It's appropriate for Romans 7, right? But, but he talks about himself a lot. The Holy Spirit's mentioned once. In Romans chapter 8, Paul references himself twice. But he references the Holy Spirit 20 times. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 27 times in the entire book of Romans. 20 of those times is in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be shifting from focusing on my limitations to the Spirit's power. From my inability to His ability. See, Christ paid the price to set us free. That's what we've been studying in the whole first half of Romans. That Christ paid the price to set us free, to be our hero, to be our Savior. Right? To live the life we should have lived, die the death we deserve to die, and then rise again so that we could be covered in his righteousness. Right, But it is the work of the Spirit that delivers us into the experience of that freedom. 
Christ did the work of our justification to declare us right before God. It's the Spirit who's been commissioned with the work of our sanctification. The setting us apart into the experience of what Christ has won. So as we dig into Romans chapter 8, we're going to be talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. But but as we wrap up this morning, I just want to take us to a parallel passage in Galatians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Galatians chapter 5. Always like that. I'm going to put it on the screen too. But I always encourage you to look at it in the text. But uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, we're going over to page 975. 975, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is like a little mini-me of Romans, okay? Um, uh, Galatians is one of Paul's first letters, possibly his first, possibly his second letter. Uh, It was written in in a very unique situation. It's six chapters and he explores the same exact themes that he that he explores in Romans. Romans is written much later in his life. And Galatians is six chapters, Romans is sixteen. Okay, so so Paul goes into much greater organized depth into these same themes, but the themes overlap powerfully. Uh, so we're gonna be looking at Galatians chapter five because Galatians five overlaps Romans seven and eight powerfully, right? So in Romans chapter uh, Galatians five, starting in verse sixteen, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I want you to notice right away, he's talking about the conflicting desires of my disordered desires of the flesh and the good desires of the spirit, right? I have a desire to be good, but evil is close at hand. It's the same exact thing. And notice what he says, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So in other words, I'm powerless to overcome the disordered desires of my flesh, but he's not. There is a way, in fact, that I can walk so that I'm not a slave to my disordered desires. And the only way to do that is to walk in the Spirit. In fact, this verse is what we, is in Greek, a triple negative. That makes no, absolutely no sense in English. There's no such thing as a triple negative in English. But in Greek, that just becomes super emphatic. It's like, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not, you cannot. There's like no way in the world you will gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. That, that phrasing, against, uh, is very, very graphic Greek language. It, it, it means entrenched, like, like trench warfare. You have trench warfare going on in your hearts. Same exact thing he's been describing in Romans 7. You have two sources of desire that are at battle for your heart, right? Remember, the desires are what uh, control your behavior, not your choices. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The battle for your behavior takes place at 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 a much deeper level than your thought life. It deals with the roots of your desires, right? And these desires are entrenched in your heart and at war, and they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's why follow your heart is like the worst advice ever, right? Looks great on a coffee mug, horrible life advice. Don't follow your heart, right? You follow your heart, you're either going to end up a moralist or you're going to end up um, uh, a sinfulist. I don't know what the word is. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, but but you're either going to you're either going to be puffed up in your pride of your obedience or you're going to be chasing all your disordered desires to things that disappoint you and never fulfill their promises. 
Neither one of them get you to the fullness of life. Neither one of them get you to what you actually want. The desires of your heart are not the path forward. The key here is not to be true to yourself, to be authentic to your... No, the key here is to... The, 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 the key to freedom isn't following your desires, it's desiring good things. The key to freedom isn't fulfilling all of your desires, but desiring things that actually lead you to freedom. You can't fix that, but the Spirit can, right? These things are in opposition to each other to keep you from doing what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Same principles we've been exploring, okay? But I want you to guess this. Galatians, this, this, these desires are set against one another. This trench warfare that's in your heart. There is a battle in your heart and in your mind that leads to your behavior. And because it is being waged at the level of desire, you can't do what you want. You can't fix it. You can't, you can't control it. You can't know enough. You can't do enough. You, you just can't. You can't solve this. But there's one way you can be set free. And that is if you walk in the Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit. And you're like, that's awesome, Steve. I have no idea what that means. What in the world does that mean? How do you do that practically? Do you have any, like, three easy steps? Is there like, is there like a flow chart to this thing? Right? Is there, is there a, a, a to-do list? Because I love to-do lists. Do this, do this, do this, do this, and then you'll be walking in the Spirit, right? No. Sorry. Uh-uh. Real things are messy things. I don't know if you've noticed that yet. It's not clean. You don't get to chart it out because that'll keep you in control. You've got no control on this thing. Well, then what does it mean? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, farther in the book of Galatians, we're given a little bit of a hint because Paul compares the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. He says the works of the, of the flesh are totally evident. There, there are all kinds of things. Sorcery, trying to con- take control of things you can't control, trying to manipulate reality, sexual immorality, vice, um, arguing, competitiveness, to the, you know, like, like greed. And The works of the flesh are obvious. Those are the ways you're trying to get the fullness of life apart from the God who gives them. So you're always trying to keep what you have and get more. Right? You're going to obey the rules that you think will get you there. You're going to break the rules that you think are going to keep you from there. That's, that's what you're going to do. The works of the flesh are obvious. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I don't know if you have noticed that, but the fruit of the Spirit is actually what you want. Like, I don't think there's anything that's not on that list that you want. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Everything you want's on that list. Or comes from that list. But what's fascinating to me is his word choice. Works of the Spirit, or excuse me, works of the flesh versus fruit of the Spirit. Works are things that you do. Works are when you expend your energy, you put out your effort, you say, I've got this and I'll take control, I've got it from here. Works are the things that you're in control of. Fruit. Fruit's a byproduct, isn't it? You can't make fruit. Fruit is what results from something else, right? So if we're talking about physical fruit, we're talking about the result of being connected to the vine. The branch doesn't do a thing. 
The branch simply receives life from the vine, which produces fruit. If we're talking about the fruit of relationship, you you can't do fruit. Like fruitfulness in relationship, which I think is actually closer to what Paul's getting at when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruitfulness of a friendship? What's the fruitfulness of a good marriage? What's the fruitfulness of a, of a good family? It is what comes when people love each other. It's what comes when, when I actually move towards you in vulnerability to love and be loved. When, when I actually find your invitation to vulnerability trustworthy and I come near to you and out of that place of intimacy flows love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. And self-control. I don't know if you've ever noticed that the fruit of the Spirit are all relational. And they are all the things that flow from a relationship that is rooted in humility and secure in love. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means to respond to His love. It means to respond to his imitation of love with the vulnerability of trust. It means to draw near even when you don't think you're worthy of drawing near. It means you're honest enough that you can own your Romans 7 stuff but not running away because you feel condemned so you've got to fix yourself and clean yourself up. It's knowing that God loves you exactly as you are. And that the Spirit is inviting you near to be loved right now. It's when you realize that the kingdom of God is populated by failures and losers. People who break their word. People who betray others. People who don't live up to their own expectations, let alone the expectations of God. The kingdom of God is populated by people in need of grace. We don't come into this family because we've earned it or deserve it. We come into this family because of the gracious invitation of God. And it's by responding to that invitation that the fruit of love actually starts being manifest in our lives. As we love the God who has loved us, as we respond to the love of an initiating God. And it's the fruit that's the manifestation of the transformation. I've seen people try to turn the fruit of the Spirit into a to-do list. Like, I'm doing all right on this one. I'm doing all right on this one. I'll give myself like a three out of 10 on this one. I'll just work on that a little bit. Yeah, that's like trying to categorize your relationships. I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'll work on this. Like, that's not the way love works. It is a dynamic interplay and interchange of trust, vulnerability, affection, where we learn to let down our guard and just be loved.
And in being loved, we are changed. You want to walk in the Spirit? Be loved by God. That's where we're going with this. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. We'll share communion together. And then we'll close it with some singing. Father, we thank you that you love us. Those are such easy words to say with such a profoundly costly reality to you and to us. It costs you everything. The giving of your son, the Holy One. He who knew no sin, that he might become sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. But it costs us too. It costs us our pride. It costs us our resumes. It costs us our pretend freedoms. Our illusion of independence and self-sufficiency. And Lord, we're crazy enough to think at times that that stuff's worth holding on to. We're silly enough to think that we can earn what you only give. And the enemy uses that sinful, prideful impulse to enslave us to condemnation. Because when we fail, because we fail every time, we're exposed for the frauds that we are. But man, I thank you that you speak a better word. That instead of words of condemnation or disappointment from you, we hear words of love. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Speak to my friend's hearts this morning, Spirit. There are those here this morning who do not feel loved or lovable. I have friends here this morning, Lord, that feel powerless in the face of their disordered desires. I have friends here this morning that are being controlled by their fear instead of their faith. Spirit, will you whisper your love to their heart right now? Will you awaken within them a response of trust, gratitude, love? This is your work, Spirit. You're the only one that can do it. And we thank you that as surely as Christ is risen from the grave, your work in us will be complete. We will be loved. And we will be set free. And we thank God for that. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.